We're going to continue our series on the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 32. The story of Jacob. Here we go. It's tough when I get on his guitar. It's a problem. You know, it's an interesting thing. As uh, Henry mentioned last week, uh, Jacob's life is one twist and turn. He's always running away. He's always fleeing. He's never completely satisfied, and he certainly is often uh, disturbed by fears and by uh, foreboding. And we've got a certain uh, clear case of that today. So we begin in chapter 32, verse 22. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he left Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinews of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because the man touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Fifty years ago, it was a hot summer night. I was sitting by a river near Virginia, in Virginia with my head in my hands, and I couldn't stop thinking about my life. I thought about all the promises God had made to me and kept. I thought about all the promises I made to God and broke. I thought about all the ways He had revealed Himself to me. Even though I was only 16 years old, He had revealed Himself in powerful ways, and yet I was holding back, and I knew it. I knew it wasn't fully committed to Him. And suddenly in the darkness by that river, I I thought I knew why. It was my father. I never felt I could measure up to my father. To me, he was a standard of devotion and faithfulness. He was devoted and faithful, and I wasn't. And with scene of my life running, scene after scene, as my mind was racing, all I could think about was my own inadequacy. 
all I could think about was what a failure I was. And then it happened. A man grabbed my shoulder. And I looked up at him and he said, Doug, you're ready, aren't you? Have you ever had a dream where you thought you heard the bell ringing and you wake up and it's the alarm? Right at that exact moment, it was as if God was saying in my mind, Doug, you're ready, aren't you? And this guy says it to me. I don't really know him. I knew his name. We'd never talked. He didn't know anything about me. But at that moment, he touches my shoulder and says, Doug, you're ready, aren't you? And it was as if the Lord was saying that to me, and I said, yes, I am. And then he prayed for me. And suddenly, at that moment, I was free. Now, in some small way, that's exactly what happens to Jacob. I was by a river, in fact, it was a tributary of the James River in Tidewater, Virginia. He was in Palestine by a river called Jabbok, which means to empty. It means to be emptied out. That's exactly what happens to him. Just like me, he had made his father the barrier. He had a conviction that he could never measure up. A hundred years earlier, the Lord had said to his mother and father, the younger shall rule over the older. The older will serve the younger. And yet Jacob's father, Isaac, didn't like that at all. Because his culture said exactly the opposite. The older shall rule over the younger. And his father made a choice. His father sought to do what he wanted to do rather than what God wanted to do, and the result was carnage. Because Jacob does just what his father does. He takes matters into his own hands. He's assisted by his mother. He tricks his brother. He cons his father. He seeks to do what he wants to do, and the result is bad. His brother wants to kill him. So he runs away. He goes 400 miles from Cana up to Assyria to where his uncle lives. And on the way, the Lord comes to him in a, in a dream and he says to him, All that I've promised, I will deliver to you. I will do for you what I told your parents I would do. And yet, when Jacob hears it, he says to the Lord, In effect, prove it. And for the next 20 years, the Lord does. For the next 20 years, he gains wealth that was totally uncommon. The Lord prospers him beyond his wildest imagination. He makes him a force to be reckoned with. He readies him to return to the promised land and stake his claim. But there's one man standing in the way, and he thinks it's his brother. And when he hears that his brother is making his way toward him, he makes a decision to save his own skin. And so he divides his 
flocks and his herds and his, his shepherds and his servants and his wives and his children into seven groups. He sends each group ahead, believing that if his brother sees all of this prosperity, somehow his anger will be diminished. That's his hope. The Bible tells us when the last group is gone, and that's the most precious group, his wives and his 11 children, the Bible says he's left all alone in the darkness by a river. And there in the darkness all alone, a man comes up behind him and he begins to wrestle him. Now think of it. When God came to Adam and Eve, it was in the cool of the garden in the morning. When he came to Abraham, he came as three traveling strangers. But when he comes to Jacob, he comes as a man who wrestles him in the night. God fights him. And in that fight, Jacob comes to know the truth. Not only about God, but about himself. So let's dig in. Now, I, I, I don't normally do this, but I've got seven points. I told the guys with PowerPoint I had six. I lied. I got one more. So you won't see the last point, but let's start with the first one. Timing. Notice the timing. Look at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. I mean, think of this. God could have grabbed him any time he wanted to. He's 97 years old when this night happens. He could have grabbed him when he was in his father's house. He could have grabbed him when he left his father. He could have grabbed him when he was serving his uncle. He could have grabbed him when all of his family and fortune was all around him, when everything was intact, but the Lord waits until he's all alone. He's divested of everything that he has. And that's just like God. In the 1930s, a man by the name of Caspar Tenboom decided that he would begin to harbor Jews in Germany. The Nazis were coming after them, and he wanted to save them, and so he began to hide them in a hidden room in his home, and he had two daughters, and both of them were scared. So his first adult daughter, Corey, came to her dad and said, I, I'm scared to death. What happens if they find them? What happens if we're found out? How will I have the strength to go on? And her father asked her a question. He said, Corey, when you were a little girl and I wanted you to buy a train ticket, when did I give you the money to go to the station? Was it a week ahead of time? She said, no, Dad. Was it a day ahead of time? No, Dad. Was it an hour before you left the house? No, Dad. You gave me the money when I left the house. And he said, ah. That's what the Lord will do for you, Corey. He'll give you exactly what you need at the moment you need it. And that's exactly what he's doing here. This is the climax of Jacob's life. He won't die for decades, and yet this is the high point. And what is his high point? When he's all alone when he's in the darkness, 
when he has nothing to lean on, God grabs him, begins to rescue. Second, notice not only the timing, notice the tenderness. Look at verse 24. The man wrestled him until the break of day. Now think of what this means. For two men to wrestle all night means they're evenly matched. Nobody can win. And yet the Bible says when the morning light begins to emerge, the man says to Jacob, let me go. And when Jacob says no, the man simply touches the inside of his thigh. And his hip is put out of joint permanently. And suddenly, Jacob comes to recognize something. This guy could have touched me in the first minute. He waited all night to do it. This isn't an even match. With the touch of this man's finger, Jacob is crippled for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, he recognizes how tender God was toward him. He could have wiped him out. But instead, after 10 hours, he gives him a touch. A permanent reminder of how tender God is. Third, notice the target. Look at verse 24 again. And the man wrestled him until the break of day. I think of Jacob's life. You read about Jacob's life. He's always had a foe. He's always had an enemy. His first enemy is his father. For 77 years, Jacob has calculated that his father's the one who's standing in the way of his blessing. For 77 years, he knows his father loves his older brother more than he loves him. In fact, he knows that his father loves Esau so much that his father is willing to disobey God. He knew that Esau would get what God had promised because his father loved him more. In fact, he's so certain of that, he's willing to trick his father. He tricks his father into the giving him the blessing, and then once he gets it, he knows his brother's become his biggest enemy. Finally, he's got a new enemy. It's not his father, it's his brother. He knows his brother will stop at nothing to exact revenge against him. But here at the river in the darkness, he comes to know the truth. His enemy is not his father. His enemy is not his brother. His enemy is himself. Here, all alone at the river, he comes to recognize that all his life he's gotten it wrong. Here in the darkness of the night at the river, he comes to recognize in this wrestling match that God is in the business of showing us how helpless we are without him. Fourth, notice the turn. These are going fast, aren't they? Fourth, notice the turn. Look at verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So think of this. When the wrestling match begins, Jacob wants the man to let him go. 
But by the end, a switch has happened. Jacob won't let the man go. You know why? Because he's come to recognize something significant. The greatest blessing he can receive is not the one he's stolen from his father, not the one he's stolen from his brother. The greatest blessing he can receive is a relationship with the one who's wrestled him. Look what he says. I will not let you go until you bless me. All his life he's tried to control God. All his life he's tried to appease God. All his life he's tried to maneuver around God. But now at the Jabbok in the middle of the night, as day is breaking, he now doesn't want to let God go. Fifth, notice the title. Verse 27, the man said to him, what's your name? He said, Jacob. February 6, 1967, in the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, Muhammad Ali was fighting to become the heavyweight champion of the world against Ernie Terrell. You may remember the fight. <laughs> I only remember it because I saw the clips. It wasn't until the Thrilla in Manila that Muhammad Ali had become my favorite athlete in the world. But here in the Astrodome, every prognosticator, every analyst of the fight said it should go no longer than three rounds. Ali should win in an easy knockout. It didn't. It went 15 rounds. You know why? Because every time he punched him, Muhammad Ali would say, what's my name? And Terrell would say, Cassius Clay. Then he'd hit him again. What's my name? One round, two rounds, ten rounds, fifteen rounds. And finally in the fifteenth round, almost dead on his feet, Ernie Terrell said in response to the same question, what's my name? Your name is Muhammad Ali. And Ali knocked him out. Think of the difference in this fight. God doesn't say, what's my name? He says, what's your name? In other words, do you know who you are? You've lived up to your name your entire life. Jacob means conniver, crook, schemer. That's what you've been. That's what you're known for. But now I'm going to give you a new name. Your new name will be Israel because you've wrestled with me and have prevailed. You say, in what way has he prevailed? I used to ask that question. I mean, what, how did he prevail? You say, well, I guess he didn't die. Yeah, that's a good way to prevail. You say, he didn't get knocked out. Nope, he only got his hip put out of joint. But there's something far greater than that. He got a new name. You see, to name someone or something in the Bible meant that you controlled them, that you had dominion over them. And so when God gives him a new name, his name is Israel, not only does God say, I'm going to have dominion over you, I'm going to control you now, 
But I'm going to give you a name that has my name in it, El, God, Israel. From now on, you will know your true identity. Your true identity is not Jacob. Your true identity is you're mine. Then six, notice the testimony. Verse 29, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. He said to him, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. You see what's happening here? All of his life, Jacob has wanted what his father had, what his grandfather had. He wanted land, he wanted descendants, he wanted blessing, he wanted more and more. But now he wants something different. He wants him. Suddenly he recognizes, this is the one that wrestled with my grandfather. This is the one who said to my grandfather, I am your strength and your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He wants God. He wants to know and be known by the greatest reward of all. He wants to be identified with this Lord. Suddenly it isn't what he wants for himself that matters. What he wants is to live in the praise and glory of another who is the one who's wrestled him. His whole life he's had one deception after another. He deceived his father. He deceived his brother, he deceived his uncle, and he deceived himself. That's why I always get a kick out of people who say, you know, I don't think I'm good enough to get God's attention. <laughs> say what? Well, I don't think I'm like you. I mean, I, I don't have reverend in front of my name. I mean, I, I just... <laughs> who is good enough? There's no one who's good enough, including Jacob. And yet the Lord comes to him and engages him. The Lord comes to him and gets intimate with him. He wrestles him all night. And just so we make sure, just so God makes sure we don't miss it, notice what Jacob calls this place. He calls it Peniel, which means I've seen the face of God. That's my testimony. Seventh, notice the tie-in. Had to be a T. Think of what this means for you and me. First of all, it means that if you want to get closer to God... He's going to have to, he's going to make you confront your biggest enemy, and that's you. It's not your bank balance, it's not your job, it's not your boss, it's not your relationship, it's not your career, it's not your kids. Your main problem is you, and my main problem is me. And when God shows up, he always gets us to see our main problem. And he always says to us, 
you really don't trust me. You really don't realize that I could have wiped you out, but instead I've brought you to this place where I can show you again your true identity. You see, when you realize who you are in Him, and you really get it, it changes your life. Second, it also means that when God brings you to this place, He almost always has to wound you. He has to break you down, get you out of your denials and your insecurities and your immaturities and your misdirection to see that deep down there is one singular desire that every one of us has and it never goes away. We have a desperate desire to know and be known by Him. Years ago, I'll never forget her, her name was Carol. She and I were the same age, 32. She had a husband in ministry. I was in ministry. She had two little girls. I had two little girls. She talked a lot. I talked a lot. But she had something I didn't have at that point, and that was stage four cancer. I went to see her one day. She was in her dining room in her hospital bed. I sat down, I said, Carol, I got a question to ask you. Why don't they pray for you anymore on the radio? She said, because I asked them to stop. I said, why did you ask them to stop? She said, because they weren't praying properly. I said, but they were praying for your healing. Don't you want to be healed? She said, no. She said, you may never understand this. I know I didn't. But every day since my diagnosis, I feel the presence of Jesus Christ more strongly than the day before. And if this is dying, I don't want to live. That's what Jacob is saying in the morning light. That's what I was saying when I was 16 years old by the river in Virginia. When the fight starts, he wants it to end. When the morning light comes, he never wants it to end. Think about this. If God had come to him in his power to wrestle, he would have been wiped out. God would have won the battle and lost the man. But instead, God came to him in weakness and apparent defeat. And he won the man. You know what I can tell you with absolute certainty? Before the beginning of time, God set his love on you. And he determined to save you by his weakness. In fact, it's only in God's weakness that we see his strength. Do you know why God only touched the hip of Jacob and dislodged it? He didn't touch his heart and make it stop. Because he was waiting to save all his destructive power for Jacob's son, Jesus. There's only one person that God has ever desired to wipe out. 
and that's himself. You see, Paul's right. His power is made perfect in weakness. I first saw that when I was 16 years old, sitting by a river one night in Virginia. Jacob saw it when he was 97 years old, sitting by a river in Palestine. Have you ever seen it? The rest of Jacob's life is not stellar. He sometimes is acting like Jacob and occasionally like Israel. Same with me. Because God is tender and gracious. He doesn't come and wrestle us once. He can even come and wrestle you today. And you know the place he often wrestles me? Right here at the table. And he invites you and me to come to the table. To get intimate with him. To have him do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To demonstrate to us again that his strength is made perfect in weakness. And so this morning, the elders are going to come. They're going to take the elements and they're going to serve you where you're sitting. And then we're going to ask you to take the bread and hold it until we're all served. And then we'll eat together and we'll do the same with the cup. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take these elements that we've had many times before and here in this place in the city of Pittsburgh on the 27th of June that you would spend time wrestling with us and showing us again that our greatest enemy is ourselves that we, as a result of eating and drinking, would again relinquish to you what is your due, that we might give you our all. For we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.